Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. The new Baseball Hall of Fame class was announced, and the Super Bowl teams have been decided. We'll break down all those storylines and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 52 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode of The Bridge on iTunes or on my website at londonbridge.com on your Friday nights. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can always call in or text in to the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. Though sports gambling remains an illegal hobby in most states, it's safe to say that millions of Americans still find a way to flock to the nearest offshore website and dive into their life savings accounts with the hopes of hitting the next big parlay, especially when a certain Sunday comes around in fewer than two weeks. To some surprise, however, one of the teams playing in Super Bowl 51 didn't get much love in that regard before the season started. Along with that, one of the most famous voices in sports broadcasting has decided to retire from life behind the microphone to a new life as a professional handicapper. It's time for the number one parody news anchor segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of... Sports news read like real news. One of the most frowned upon but more popular of hobbies is sports gambling. Even if it means staying out of the Hall of Fame, it's hard for most folks to stay away from the temptation of hitting a big payday by taking the points. The National Football League is a prime landing spot for sports gambling, starting with preseason picks for a team's regular season success and who might win that season's Super Bowl. 
This year was no different, but one of the teams that actually made the Super Bowl didn't quite get the love it deserved leading into the season. In fact, there was so little interest in betting the Atlanta Falcons to win that some Las Vegas sportsbooks moved their Super Bowl odds from 40 to 1 to 100 to 1 to try and gain some interest. Even those odds, however, didn't help. When the NFL season kicked off in September, some sportsbooks had taken more bets on the Cleveland Browns to win the Super Bowl than it did on the Falcons. Not only that, as of early September, the only team to see fewer bets to win the Lombardi Trophy was the Tennessee Titans. Even with lower odds, the Patriots were still the popular preseason favorite to win Tom Brady's fifth championship. The Falcons opened as three-point underdogs against the New England Patriots in Super Bowl 51, but the boys in Vegas will be sitting pretty regardless of the outcome. And while some still poo-poo sports gambling, others embrace it, even while covering a game they may have wagered. Next to Al Michaels, Hall of Fame broadcaster Brent Musburger had no qualms for letting viewers know how a game was faring with the boys in Vegas. After a legendary play-by-play career that spanned five decades, Musburger announced his retirement from the broadcast booth. His last game will be broadcast on January 31st on the SEC Network when Georgia plays Kentucky in Rupp Arena. Musburger has paved the way for broadcasters since his days in the local television industry back in 1968. He became a pioneer of live pregame, halftime, and postgame studio shows while hosting NFL Today on CBS from 1975 to 1989. He was surprisingly fired from CBS during the Final Four in 1990 then hired by ABC Sports almost immediately that same year and has worked for them and ESPN ever since. He's called national championship games, Final Fours, NBA games, horse races, and tennis matches. And let's not forget, he is the voice of one of the most famous opening lines in sports broadcasting. You are looking live at the Georgia Dome in Atlanta. An interesting tidbit to that line that started during his CBS days was that a sports better had worried what the weather would be like for that night's broadcast game. Musburger decided that the best way to let potential gamblers that were tuned into the game know the weather would be to inform his audience that they were indeed looking live. How fitting that one of Brent's most famous lines came from the gambling world, a world he will now immerse himself in in the next chapter of his career. In a statement, Musburger said, and I quote, What a wonderful journey I have traveled with CBS and the Disney Company. A love of sports allows me to live a life of endless pleasure. And make no mistake, I will miss the arenas and stadiums dearly. Most of all, I will miss the folks I have met along the trail. But the next rodeo for me is in Las Vegas. Stop by and we'll share a cold one and some good stories I may even buy. 
End quote. That's right, the AP has reported that the 77-year-old has plans to move to Las Vegas and start a sports handicapping business with his family. Although, early reports also indicated that Musburger won't abandon the microphone altogether, and we might be hearing him on the airwaves chatting sports handicapping, this time with a little bit more freedom than in the past. Though Brent will also be associated with a drugged-out Eminem, AJ McCarron's smoke show girlfriend, and a stern rebuttal to those who weren't very keen on his comments for Oklahoma's Joe Mixon in the latest Sugar Bowl, the legend of Brent Musburger will long be remembered in the sports broadcasting world. Here's hoping he's as good in Vegas as he was in the booth. I'm John Lund for Sports News, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to check tonight's betting lines. When we come back, we'll chat this year's Hall of Fame class in Major League Baseball and introduce a new movie segment to The Bridge. We'll be right back on The Bridge keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text into the bridge at any time at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail, text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. And this week, we want to know... Who will win Super Bowl 51 and why? We'll talk NFL playoffs and Super Bowl 51 later in the show, but not before we talk about the Baseball Hall of Fame and the three players named to the class of 2017. It seems like the Hall of Fame voting results end up with screaming and yelling at least for one day before it gets put back on the back burner because, hey, NFL playoffs. Joining us to help break down this year's class and some possible snubs is Zachary Reimer, He's an MLB lead writer for Bleacher Report and friend of the show. He's still pumping out content, even in the offseason, so you can still follow him on Twitter. He's at Zach Reimer. That's Z-A-C-H-R-Y-M-E-R. And he'll help you start building up some excitement for spring training coming up in the next couple of months. Without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Zach Reimer, friend of the radio program. He's an MLB lead writer for Bleacher Report. He's been kind enough to join us again. Zach, thanks for a couple minutes. How you been? I'm doing just shiny, John. Thanks for having me back on. Last week, as we know, even though it seems like forever ago, the Hall of Fame class of 2017 was announced, and you had teased earlier in that day correctly how you expected that to go just based on some of the different things we were reading and such we had jeff bagwell get in in his seventh year 86 percent tim Raines finally gets in on his final year with 86 percent and yvonne rodriguez from the clouds first ballot hall of famer 76 percent did any of those three names surprise you at least for the ones that got in maybe not the ones that got close well i gotta correct you on one thing i actually as I remember, I actually didn't think Yvonne Rodriguez was going to get in. I had, as many people were, I was closely watching Ryan Thibodeau's uh, Hall of Fame ballot tracker. And Yvonne Rodriguez started out very strong as, as the early ballots came in, but then dipped right. kind of as more came in. So I was like, okay, I'm guessing Pudge is just 
barely going to miss. So when I saw he made the cut, I was like, oh, that's a, that's a pleasant surprise. You know, I wanted him to get in. I think he's certainly a deserving Hall of Famer. Uh, and Bagwell and Reigns, you pretty much knew they were going to get in. They were the ones who got really close last year. Uh, you know, Bagwell, I think, has been a deserving Hall of Famer the whole time. Reigns, you know, I can't say anything about him that Jonah Carey hasn't said better, but uh, absolutely deserving Hall of Famer. Glad he's finally in. And on his last year of eligibility as well, so... Uh, I would say, yeah, Pudge was really the only surprise, and even that wasn't a very big surprise. So, uh, yeah, pretty much um, as expected this year, I would say. Quickly on Jeff Bagwell, when you pick up a bat, do you still try to emulate his stance? Uh, you know, I, I on Hall of Fame uh, announcement day, I actually tweeted, like, without Jeff Bagwell, when I was a kid, I would not have known how to stand in the box while playing wiffle ball. Uh, you know, everybody has their favorite kind of stance growing up, and it seems like in today's game there aren't as many weird batting stances as there used to be, but um, we all definitely remember Jeff Bagwell, you know, kind of low. Uh, it looks like he's sitting down in the box, you know, like an invisible chair, some Clint Eastwood action. So, yeah, absolutely. And just uh, not only that, but a really, really good ball player as well. 449 home runs, 202 stolen bases, 948 OPS. Uh, all in just 15 years of action, so hats off to him. He deserves to be in there. Is there a reason why it might have taken Tim Raines the full 10-year period to get in? I know when this happens, a lot of people will put up the argument where I don't know how this person's statistics got better over a nine-year period or something to the like. And he does have some pretty significant numbers. I know a lot of people argue that well, he didn't make the all-star team for the last several seasons of his career, but 800 steals, pretty solid at his position, not maybe the best defender. Overall, I think he stacks up pretty well. What do you think was the reason why it took so long for him to finally get in? I think the big factor, big factor would have to be just the changing perceptions of what makes players Hall of Fame worthy, right? Um, for hitters, it used for the longest time. There's 3,000 hits, 500 home runs, right? Uh, Tim Raines had neither of those. And so I think that's kind of what held him out for quite a while. But one thing that happened, you know, not only was there kind of like the uh, grassroots effort to kind of pay, get people to pay attention to his better statistics and and just contextualizing them in the larger scheme of things, but also um, in recent years, I think it was two years ago, where uh, the Hall of Fame voting block got a major shakeup in that guys who were are no longer actively covering baseball who have been out of the loop for a long time got pushed out. Basically said, we're going to take your votes away because what the hell do you know about baseball at this point? Right. Um, and uh, that basically gave the bulk of the influence over the more, uh, you know, I don't want to say new school, but people who definitely pay more attention to sabermetrics and the things that make brains look good. I mean, we can all look at uh, the Jay Jaffe war system and see that he's rated as a top 10 left fielder of all time. And even that, you know, you can look at more traditional stuff. He's, he's got the 800 stolen bases, a 385 career on base percentage. I looked up the only other two guys with 800 steals in the on base percentage over 385 are Ricky Henderson and Ty Cobb. Well, not bad company there, uh, and that's basically what it was all about. This is a guy who was a very dependable, very good leadoff hitter who also played a solid left field for a long time. So why not? That one should be in there. 
I think the biggest surprise for people when it came to Ivan Rodriguez getting in was, I mean, he's an incredible catcher. So that was not the reason of him not having the numbers to back up a Hall of Fame worthy career. I think it was more the backstory of people thinking and probably assuming correctly that he was involved in steroids. We know he was in Jose Canseco's book, Juiced. And while thought to be unreliable, he really hasn't been wrong with who he's outed in that book throughout the years. Why do you think he was one of the first ones to really break through that threshold when it comes to those quote unquote steroid guys making their way into the Hall of Fame, especially doing so on the first ballot? Well, you know, that's the big question with Pudge, or that was going to be the big question with Pudge, is whether or not the steroid suspicions would kind of give him the Mike Fiazza or the Jeff Bagwell delay in terms of getting into the Hall of Fame. It's one of the things where you can guess and you can speculate. And my attitude is, listen, that whole era, this, especially the mid-1990s, the early 2000s, that whole era was the Wild West. I'm convinced that the vast majority of the league was using something or another. And that was right when he was in his prime, but you can sit there and say, okay, he's guilty by association, or you can sit there and say, what do we actually have on him? And apart from Jose Canseco's word and a cryptic kind of answer that Pudge gave, I think in 2003, uh, whether he was on that, that 2003 list, um, there was really nothing there. And we also have to remember that uh, they started testing in 2005. Well, he played, what, seven more years after that. Right. In the grand scheme of things, I think he was more deserving of the benefit of the doubt than most guys. And once you get past that, I mean, it's really no question that he was Hall of Fame material. Uh, you know, towards the end of his career, I say they, they started testing in 2005. He stuck around. His numbers went down the drain. But, you know, early portion of his career, I mean, he was incredible. He was an all-star every year, a gold glover every year, an MVP in 1999. This is a guy who had all the numbers, but the other thing I think is, I, I think I'm becoming to believe is more important in Hall of Fame voting is, do they pass, did they pass the eye test? Did you look at them and see a superstar player? And you know as well as I do that kind of growing up in that period that Pudge was the catcher right. for Major League Baseball during that era. I mean, you, you, you would watch Rangers games just to hope that you could see him throw a ball. I mean, you picture Yanni and Molina in times 10. That's this guy throwing. So, absolutely. He should be there as well, and I'm glad that he got in. When it comes to those players that you and I watched growing up and many others have as well, that you just looked at them and thought, these are the superstars, these are the people that we admire and really made the game what it is for us growing up. I think the two biggest names now on that list are in Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, and we did see their numbers increase a little bit. They're in the 50 percentile now, and that's at least gone up since they were first on the ballot. Do you think that at least Bud Selig getting in and, and voted in, not by the baseball writers, but getting into the Hall of Fame in his own right, Pudge getting in now, will that be the snowball effect that pushes these guys, these steroid-era guys, and especially the two biggest names from that, now getting closer to that percentile that they need to get into the Hall of Fame? Yeah, you know, I you mentioned the, the Bud Selig effect. I think that 
you know, because they had a pretty significant jump from last year to this year. I think it was like they were in the mid-40s last year, I want to say, and now they're in the mid-50s. That's pretty good for a single-year jump, especially for these two guys. Um, and I know there was a lot of talk leading up to the reveal that this was the Bud Selig effect. And not only the Bud Selig effect, but Tony La Russa got in as well. This is a guy who had Mark McGuire on his teams. And right. he, had, he managed Jose Canseco and uh, Mark McGuire uh, in Oakland as well. So uh, there is that kind of sense that, well, if the people who benefited from these juiced-up players are a fair game for the Hall of Fame, then why not the labor itself, right? So that's that's a I I think that's a compelling argument, and then it also goes back to the old guys who are no longer uh, who haven't been covering baseball for a long time getting pushed off the rolls, and once again the influence going more towards younger people who may be more forgiving, and that I believe is only going to become an even uh, bigger factor in the voting. Um, I believe that after 2018, a whole bunch of uh, Web writers are due to join uh, the Hall of Fame voting block, and they're going to have a pretty big sway in the voting as well. So, you know, this is their for Bonds and Clemens. They're in their this was their fifth year on the ballot, so they're halfway through their eligibility. Um, but they've risen already from I think the mid 30s when they debuted all the way to mid 50s. That's not a long. Uh, they're at this point they're not that far away from 75 percent. So I think there's a pretty good chance they will get in. Two of the big names that got really close and will most likely get in probably next year, Trevor Hoffman and Vladimir Guerrero, with the former being five away and Vlad being just 15 away, Vlad coming in on his first ballot. Do you think these guys are most likely going to get in next year, and is that an okay thing? Are they well-deserving of the Hall of Fame as well? Well, I don't think there's any question Hoffman's going to get in next year, Um, and that's uh, you know, I'm kind of uncomfortable with that because I think so much uh, of his candidacy revolves around his 601 career saves. Uh, I hate saves. I think they're one of, if not the most useless statistic in baseball ever. So that that kind of makes me uncomfortable. But But I don't think you can blame him for the way he was used throughout his career. And even I can appreciate that for a long time, he was one of the best relief pitchers in baseball. Uh, just year in and year out, just he would get it done. Even when he didn't have his big fastball anymore, it was just change speeds, locate. You know, once you kind of go back to that eye test as well, that you feel like it was him that kind of popularized closers entering games as these big events, right? Uh, I have very clear memories of the 1998 World Series, him entering to his his theme song, I, I, I'm I, pretty sure it was Hell's Bells. It was Hell's Bells, right? Yes, sir. Okay, thank God. I didn't want to get that one wrong, but I was, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but, that, you know, that remember during that World Series, and that was kind of a big thing that got the crowd going. And then after that, it was Mariano Rivera who started doing Enter Sandman, and now they all have their theme song. So you can kind of sit there and go, okay, well, Trevor Hoffman, maybe not, maybe his case for the Hall of Fame upsets my sabermetric leanings, but. You know, I could live with it. I think, uh, you know, I think he makes the cut just enough. And Vladimir Guerrero, I mean, he's one of these other guys where the the saber metrics aren't all that great, but you sit there and go like, man, I mean, he was he was a 318 career hitter. He's got 449 home runs. He had uh, 181 stolen bases. He won an MVP. He made some 
absolutely ridiculous throws from the outfield, and he'll always be remembered for his ability to hit literally anything that you threw his way. So I'm okay with him being there as well, even if he doesn't, you know, sabermetrically speaking, he doesn't quite make the grade as an all-time great right fielder. Um, he was so much fun to watch, and the, the traditional stats are so good that I give him the thumbs up. We had a couple guys start making their way up the ranks in a sense, so it's not necessarily worthy to say that they're snubbed or that they won't get in. We saw Edgar Martinez move up a little bit. Mike Mussina moved up a little bit. Kurt Schilling moved down because of some of the comments that he had to say about journalists. Aside from those three, were there any other names that you might view as snubs or some names that you think are too low on the list that should be a little bit higher from this year's class? How about Larry Walker? Larry Walker is a guy who has kind of had trouble gaining support. Uh, he's only at 21.9% this year. That's a long way from 75%. I mean, yeah, I think the one thing you can hold against him is that, yeah, he played at Coors Field for a lot of years and he put up some huge numbers there. But then again, how could you not playing in Coors Field? Uh, but even when you adjust his numbers, I mean, yeah, 965 career OPS and a 141 career OPS plus, which for, you know, that's adjusted to league average. That's a really good OPS plus. He was also a gold over multiple times over, and um, I think those well-deserved, a very underrated outfielder. Um, I think he's, you know, he might have as good a case, if not a better case, than Vladimir Guerrero if you just want to talk about pure numbers. Um, I'd love to see him get some support, but um, it doesn't look like it's happening. So we'll have to go on the Tim Raines train for him in the last couple of years to maybe get him some recognition, because I do agree. Even though he played at a hitter-friendly park, you still do have to hit the ball. So next year, we're going to, again, have some notable names coming in, some off the top of my head that I can think of, or Chipper Jones, Jim Tomey, I believe Omar Vizquel is coming in as well. For next year, are there some names that jump out to you that could be first ballot Hall of Famers or will be high up on that list as well? I will be very upset if Chipper Jones is not a first ballot Hall of Famer. I think he's one of the greatest third basemen ever, and one of the I you know we appreciated him a lot during his career. Yet I still think he's underappreciated. Jim Tomey, I mean, great power hitter for a long, long time. Scott Rowland, a really good two-way third baseman. Andrew Jones, despite the fact he fell off once he hit the age of 30, had basically a 10-year prime where he was one of the best two-way center fielders in the league. I mean, that's a pretty good uh, class of first-timers right there. I, I'm very conflicted about Team Omar Vizquel. I, I, I just don't know. I mean, that's a tough one. I honestly don't know. I, you know, it's you can look at the Gold Gloves he won and his defensive reputation, but then you can look at how he actually measured out, and he really doesn't kind of make the grade as like an all-time like Ozzy Smith type defender. But at the same time, and you sit there and you go, okay, well, the, should that overrule my eye test since we didn't have the best metrics for a good portion of his career? So I don't know. He's one I he's one that I honestly have to make up my mind about. Uh, and I guess the other guy we should mention, he's going to be on the ballot for his second year next year is Manny Ramirez after getting just 23.8% of the vote in his first year this year. Um, it will be interesting to see if he gains any support, if people kind of forgive him for his ties to PEDs. Or if people feel like I do, where it's like, you can't really compare him to like a Bonds or Clemens because he actually broke rules and got caught right. twice. So 
I'm very interested to see if uh, if more people come around on him or if he's permanently in the doghouse. So that's another guy to watch next year. Well, thanks for your time, Zach. It was a pleasure getting to talk to you again, especially about something as exciting as it was this year and as it always is with the Hall of Fame voting and just getting able to break down some of the different guys that are up for it and have been rewarded with it that we might not have known as much about. As I said, hopefully we can catch up again soon as well when things start heating up again. Keep up the good work and try to keep busy for the next couple months or so, and we'll be looking forward to some of the stuff you guys have in store again. I will, and uh, you know, before, like I said, before long we'll have all sorts of baseball stuff to talk about. should be good. Thanks again to Zach for giving us some of his time to chat baseball. Now it's time for a brand new segment here on The Bridge. Not only will The Bridge continue keeping you connected with all things sports, but we can now add entertainment under that umbrella, more specifically with movie reviews. My cousin Kyle Cicilloni is a huge movie buff, and he is a strong pulse with the current goings-on in the movie world. He's also no stranger to podcasting and doing movie reviews on different forms of media, so it was an easy decision to combine both of our passions here into a segment that will come up whenever a review may be deemed necessary. There aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films and we'll have a better idea of what will be in store for you when you view them. This week, he'll take a look at the movie Arrival, a mystery sci-fi film starring Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner, and a film you'll be hearing from with nominations at this year's Academy Awards. You can find Kyle on Twitter and on Periscope. He is at Kyle Cicilloni, that's K-Y-L-E-C-I-C-I-L-I-O-N-I. And you can also find some of his work over at ajaznetworks.com. That's A-J-A-Z-Z Networks, common spelling. Without further ado, here's Kyle Cicilloni with Five Minutes in the Film Room. Thanks, John. Much like the arrival of the two best teams in the NFL heading to the Super Bowl, Denny Villeneuve has properly entered the cinematic big leagues with his latest film, Arrival. Starring Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, and Forrest Whitaker, just to name a few, it's essentially a sci-fi movie, with a gripping emotional narrative underneath it. It succeeds as a really good sci-fi movie. If it was just a standalone about the story of what happens within the context of the move of this movie, it would be a pretty damn good sci-fi movie. But layer that with this narrative underneath it of Amy Adams' story and her character and what she goes through, it makes the, everything just flow and become something greater and that's really where the movie shines i think it's basically a two-point conversion during this era of unreliable kickers it's also a really intelligent movie it doesn't really spoon feed you doesn't leave you in the dark but it kind of finds a good balance it's not really like the intelligence that seems to go and get bill belichick into all of the kind of shenanigans he gets it's a it's a smart movie much like The Martian that came out last year, but it's not just the premise about what the science and everything that goes behind it, although there has been a great deal of research that goes along with that when it comes to this movie. They basically create their own language. So the aliens that exist within this movie, it's not really a spoiler alert, they write using ink, and they're kind of in circles, so there's a lot of symbolism that goes along with the movie, that's part of that, but it's a really cool and unique way that they do it. Very artistic, and it adds to the story. 
and it just seems like they did a lot of the research. I know that they brought in, I believe, some physicists and things on this, sort of like they did for Interstellar, which also has a lot of similar themes to this movie, although I would say that it's a little bit smaller in scope than Interstellar, both physically in the space and time of where this all exists and what happens in Interstellar, and also emotionally. This movie has much more focus when it comes to the emotional story of what's going on. It doesn't seem as far-fetched or undeserving as uh, parts of Interstellar did, because I feel like Interstellar kind of falls apart in the third act. But other than that here, I mean, Jeremy Renner is a theoretical physicist. I guess that's okay. I don't know. It's a lot like Andy Dalton as a quarterback, I feel similarly about. It's not really going to win any awards, but it gets the job done, so fair enough. But another thing this movie does is it hits a lot of modern-day topics and themes without it really being overwhelming. It's not overtly preachy. It's not hitting you over the head with a lot of these ideas, although it brings them up to be important enough to talk about and be a part of the movie without it having to drag this message across for two-hour runtime or whatever. It's gorgeously crafted, honestly. The whole movie shot really well. The visual effects are seamless. The way they shoot these aliens in a kind of a mist, again, not really a spoiler, they use this mist around it. it maybe that's to hide some of the, the CG elements. But the special effects are effective nonetheless. They don't have to be super flashy. Similar to Kyle Shanahan's rigorous and particular offensive attack, which embarrassed defenses all season, this movie has precise editing. It is on point. It is what carries this movie throughout. It is a movie that has certain parts, it plays with time, certain parts, and the way that the editing happens it's relaying messages to you throughout the movie, and you're not even realizing it until towards the end of the film when everything just clicks. It's not just drowning you in this convoluted ending that they just happen to shove into your mouth the last five minutes of the movie. It arrives there organically, and that's what makes the editing so particularly perfect in this film. There's elements here spanning from love and life and having children and what it means to be a parent, all the way to foreign diplomacy, compromise foreign affairs and just what it means to be a human and, and the human race as a whole and what that means to this earth and the things that go along with all of that. It weaves all these ideas into a very cohesive, artistic piece of film, honestly. And it's going to be up for a lot of awards and it probably should be. And another thing, the last thing that this kind of deals with I just want to mention is the insight on how we perceive things. So relativity is just the way we see things and how that changes based on the laws of the things that we have come to grow and know as, as human beings. Everything is relative, right? Even to the Jaguars, who may seem grim upon their embarrassing seasons year after year, but at the end of the day, at least they still have more postseason wins than the Cowboys during the last 20 NFL seasons. Once again, I'm Kyle Cicilloni, and thanks for tuning in. Let's take a quick break to check out tonight's Movie Times. When we come back, we'll recap the AFC and NFC Championship games and preview Super Bowl 51 with our next guest. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. To help us talk more about Super Bowl 51 and recap how we got here is Chris Wessling, a writer for Around the NFL who's been covering football for quite some time. Chris will help us break down the AFC and NFC championship games before we dive into all things Super Bowl 51, including his pick to win the Lombardi Trophy and his pick for MVP. 
Without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Chris Wessling. He is a writer for Around the NFL and is here to help us talk NFL playoffs. Chris, thanks for joining the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. I wanted to quickly start just by asking you what it is like being a writer for Around the NFL, some of the different responsibilities that you have in that position. Uh, when I first started, Greg Rosenthal, who had been my boss at Roto World and, and recruited me to around the NFL, told me that your job is to find whatever interests you and write about it. So that, it, as far as direction goes, it doesn't get much better than that. Uh, once in a while, you have to jump off and hit a press conference or something major. But for the most part, I think the philosophy is you write, you write well when the subject interests you. Uh, if you have something to say, it's great. If it, To me, if it's like, oh, Rex Ryan opened his mouth and said something funny, uh, I don't tend to write about that kind of stuff. So uh, the job is, you know, it's better than I ever imagined. It's better than uh, delivering mail, which I used to do a long time ago. As I like to say on here, no one really circles the wagons quite like the National Football League when it at least comes to the news aspect of things. There's really never a dull moment, and I'm sure you have plenty to write about throughout the entire year, specifically now as we enter a little bit of a lull now with the two weeks before Super Bowl 51. But just getting right down to it, we've got the New England Patriots and the Atlanta Falcons, something that I don't think really anyone would have pegged at the start of the preseason the Patriots might not be surprising, but the Atlanta Falcons might. What are your overall thoughts on both those teams making it to the Super Bowl? Well, the Falcons, I thought, might be able, if we're talking about preseason expectations, I thought they might be able to reach 30 points a game because I love their offensive talent uh, and squeak in as a wild card because me and I think everyone else, we all thought the Panthers would run away with that division. So that is a surprise. But once the game started going by, by midseason, I thought the Falcons were a true contender, and I thought they had the best offense in the NFL. And I think people slept on them up until that Seattle playoff game. A lot of people just had not seen the Falcons play this year, and I think now everybody knows that, at least on offense, they're legit. I think the defense is still the big question mark there. To follow that up, what do you think are some of the things that makes their offense so successful? As you mentioned, the Falcons aren't necessarily a team that might jump off the page when it comes to at least people viewing their games, but as they proved to us once again this past Sunday, they've been really clicking on all cylinders, and they have a ton of weapons, not just at their quarterback position, but the main positions as well. What do you think has been working for them so much for this season? They have many keys. Let's break it down into component parts. Two years ago, they bring in Kyle Shanahan, who is one of the most creative offensive minds in the NFL, and quite possibly the best play caller going right now. Josh McDaniels and Sean Payton are his competition, I think, for that. So it starts with Kyle Shanahan being so creative and having a multi-dimensional offense. And then Matt Ryan, people people just kind of sleep on him and don't think he's that good of a quarterback because he's coming off a bad year and he's never been mentioned with the Tom Brady's and Aaron Rodgers of the world. But he has been exceptionally accurate, a great decision maker, distributes the ball well, and beyond that, big plays. He's been number one in the NFL in every big play metric, every downfield passing metric. He is better in pocket movement and extending plays than people think. Uh, and then let's move to Julio Jones, the best wide receiver in the NFL, and has the effect like Randy Moss that he opens up so much ground for the other players on the field because he takes defensive attention away in addition to making plays. 
You move on to the component parts in that wide receiver core. Mohamed Sanu, a great number two this year when he's been healthy. Taylor Gabriel is extremely fast, a big play threat. He's kind of like their version of Tyreek Hill because he's so fast and can uh, he can make defenders miss in open space. Throw in a guy like Aldrick Robinson, who's, who's also got 4'3", four, 4'4", four, four speed. So you're talking a, a very good wide receiver core. Austin Hooper, the rookie tight end, has above average, average speed for, for a tight end. So I think those parts, and then they have the best complementary backfield in the NFL. I think Devonta Freeman and Tevin Coleman are both top 10 NFL running backs right now. In the NFC Championship game, was there anything that the Green Bay Packers could have maybe done to try and stop that offense, or was it really going to be Aaron Rodgers having to go punch for punch with them? I think it had to be Rodgers going punch for punch. I, I, this isn't something that's Packers-specific. The Falcons have done this to almost everyone they faced all season long, and, and maybe they were a little bit more locked in uh, on Sunday, but this is not something new. It, it you can blame Don Capers. You can blame uh, Clay Matthews no longer being a defensive player of the year candidate, uh, kind of an undermanned secondary, but this is what the Falcons do to teams. This was another year where it seemed like Mike McCarthy was on the hot seat again when the Packers got off to that not the best start that they wanted at 4-6, and six, but once Aaron Rodgers came out again and said, we're going to run the table, and he did, that kind of put that into the back burner and was forgotten about in a way, but now here we are again with Aaron Rodgers coming up short of even getting to a Super Bowl, only having one in his career with Green Bay, and we know how difficult it is to even get back. Should Packers fans maybe be a little bit concerned that the time might be running out with this group and maybe some changes need to be made? I really don't think so. They did better than 28 other teams this year, which is pretty amazing when you consider their 4-6 and six start. And I know there was talk about Mike McCarthy's offense growing stale, but nobody was talking about that the last six weeks. You know, I just... To, to come, it doesn't seem like there's a problem when Aaron Rodgers is scoring 30 points every game and racking up 450 yards. So, to me, McCarthy doesn't seem like the problem. It's the other other side of the ball, and maybe that's just a talent issue. Based on what Aaron Rodgers was doing during that run, I think everyone ends up being a prisoner of the moment with almost all athletes when they're doing well. And we were getting comparisons that Aaron Rodgers was the best quarterback in the league. He was better than Brady. He was the MVP. But all that aside now, and we can kind of take a step back and just look at his season as a whole. How would you rate what he was able to do this season in regards to those other quarterbacks and what he had to work with this year? Well, I think Matt Ryan deserves the MVP. He did it all year long. Tom Brady missed four games. I think those two are about on the same level when they played. Aaron Rodgers, at his best, I believe is the best quarterback in the NFL and has been since 2010. Uh, I think his arm talent and pocket movement is on another level from everyone else. But that said, he went through a month-long slump where he he was kind of a liability at times. I think he can elevate his surrounding talent more than anyone else when he's going strong, and that's what we saw in the second half of the season. I know you've just written about this recently that a lot of people have tend to put pressure on Matt Ryan saying that he's in a way a playoff choker and he hasn't gotten it done in the big spot. But as you've mentioned, his numbers are now starting to back up the fact that maybe he is a very legitimate quarterback. He's worthy of all this praise that he may or may not be getting and that he's had an incredible season this year and in the past as well. What can you say about Matt Ryan and kind of dispute that argument that people have about him not being one of those top tier quarterbacks? 
Well, the playoff thing was just absurd all along. It, it's taking like a four or five game sample size and drawing conclusions. Part of that was his rookie season. Are you going to expect a rookie to come in and outplay Kirk Warner in the playoffs? I mean, in the last four games, he's had over 300 yards and three touchdowns in each of those games, which no one has ever done in the playoffs. So that's just the danger you get in with using small sample sizes. As far as anything else, I would just invite you to watch this year's film. He's been doing it all year. He's exceptionally accurate. He makes great decisions. And we saw last week against Green Bay that he is making plays outside the pocket. He's improvising. And people don't think of him like that, but that's that's a talent that he does have. Going into the AFC game, we've known that for whatever reason, the Patriots have had the Steelers and specifically Mike Tomlin's number, especially since Tom Brady has arrived in New England. And as the game went on, you didn't really necessarily get the sense that Pittsburgh was going to do enough to change what they might have been doing wrong to stop Tom Brady. Did it surprise you that things kind of went to chalk when it comes to how the matchups have been between Big Ben and Tom Brady in the past several years? I think what surprised me was just how wide open Chris Hogan was almost all game. So many times he was just waiting for the ball to come to him. That's what surprised me now is that just because they have a soft zone defense, sure, I guess I don't expect Mike Tomlin to change his defense uh, just for that opponent, but, but it's something that you would expect maybe Bill Belichick or Josh McDaniels or Matt Patricia to do in New England to, to adjust for an opponent. But I think that's one thing New England's known for, and I'm not sure Pittsburgh is. And we heard Ben Roethlisberger mention that he's going to consider retirement, which a lot of NFL players do say after a season, immediately after a season. It does take some time to kind of mull things over, especially after a heartbreaking loss. But in the same token as with Green Bay, some Steelers fans might be thinking that a change might need to be made, whether that's at the head coaching position, something along the lines of their defense, or maybe even switching things along their offense. I know they had to deal with some injuries this year, Le'Veon Bell missing those first couple games. Is there a major thing that you see that maybe the Pittsburgh Steelers need to do differently to get over this hump a little bit? They need to get Martavis Bryant off the weed. (laughs) <laughs> I I think it's, it's very easy for fans to suggest change, but we very rarely hear an alternative. So you fire Mike Tomlin or you fire Keith Butler or whoever you want to fire, who's going to be an upgrade on those guys? Mike Tomlin is one of the most successful head coaches in the NFL over the last decade. No, I don't think they need a change. I think they'll be right back atop of the AFC North next year, and I think if they can get their whole team healthy and off the suspension list, they can stand toe-to-toe with anyone. When it comes to New England's defense, they've gone under the radar a little bit this year. And and whether that comes from people saying they haven't necessarily played the best quarterbacks or even the best teams, they have quietly put up some impressive numbers, at least with some statistics where it would help in that argument. How important do you think that Patriots defense will be come the Super Bowl? We know how much Bill Belichick likes to stop at least one of your superstar players and make you go elsewhere to be successful. And now he's faced with a solid wide receiving core, solid running backs, and a potential MVP quarterback. Where do you think they're going to draw that line and what they might do against Atlanta in Super Bowl 51? Yeah, it's hugely important for this defense. They haven't faced anyone all year, and they are a good defense. They are probably the best tackling defense in the NFL. They're a very good red zone defense, but they don't have a great pass rush. 
they don't have explosive players coming off the edge. Uh, I think the Falcons are going to test that. And even if Ben Roethlisberger is the best quarterback they faced all year, Le'Veon Bell left that game before the first quarter was over. I, I really don't think the Patriots have faced the test since Week 10 when they lost to the Seahawks. That's not to say that they're not a good defense. They're certainly a better defense than the Falcons' defense, but they have not faced anything like this this Atlanta offense yet. Is there a particular part of the Falcons' offensive game plan that you think they might or they should rely on a little bit more, whether that comes from the passing game or trying to establish the run early and maybe keep Tom Brady off the field as long as possible? I don't think they're going to establish the run early. I think the run is New England's that's New England strength. They have not allowed a 90-yard rusher in 25 games now. And I think the Falcons have shown they can pass on anyone. So I think that's the way you're going to see Kyle Shanahan draw it up. We know New England likes to use that next-man-up mentality. And losing Gronk, you would think, would have been an incredible negative. But Martellus Bennett really stepped up into that position. The return of Deion Lewis has really helped their running game, especially with the pass and what he's able to do. And we know how effective Tom Brady makes those wide receivers. What do you think we'll see from New England offensively as far as their attack is concerned going up against this Dan Quinn defense? I think we're going to see a lot more of the running game than we saw last week. I think we're going to see more of LeGarrette Blount than we've seen in the playoffs. And I think they're going to saddle him up, play some Deion Lewis, and I think they're really going to run at Atlanta. Atlanta's a defense that has not had a backbone since we can remember. If you run right at them and you have a strong running game, will they capitulate? I know they're different now. I know they're on a nice little streak here. But I don't know that their run defense has really been tested. When a game ends up being a shootout like it might be with these great quarterbacks and these great offenses, there's usually one or two things that can make a breaker game. And we almost saw that in the games over this past weekend with Green Bay's fumble and some of the little things that end up going wrong in a game. Is there something you think either the Falcons or the Patriots can do, whether that's on defense or special teams, that might be that little something that can change the way the game is going? That's a good question. I think Bill Belichick probably obsesses over special teams more than any coach in the NFL. He has been known to draft players purely for special teams ability. And I think that if you have to give the edge to anyone in this game, it would have to be the Patriots just because of how important it is to Belichick. He treats it just as importantly as offense and defense. Just overall, to start wrapping this up, how important do you think this is just for Atlanta? I mean, they've only had that one championship overall in 1995 when the Braves were able to win. Dan Quinn coming in and taking this team to the Super Bowl after just two seasons. We know how used to getting to the Super Bowl New England fans have been, but for the Atlanta side of things, how exciting of a season do you think it is for them? It's a fascinating situation for them because... If Kyle Shanahan was going to stick around, you could look at that talent, especially the last three drafts they've had, and say, look at the nucleus they have. They could be atop that NFC South for several years more. But with Kyle Shanahan leaving, that is a huge loss. I don't think it can be overstated. So I think the future is a question mark. And as far as how important it is, look, as a member of the media, I fight against this all the time, but I realize that the rest of the country and the media only take about eight to nine teams seriously in the NFL. They're the only ones that get publicity. And Atlanta's in a situation now 
like Seattle was about six years ago. Right. Where they were an afterthought. And if they can win the Super Bowl, I think they'll be treated not quite like Seattle is now, but pretty similarly where it takes you from an afterthought team to a power team. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't ask everyone's favorite question when they do interviews like these. What are your thoughts on who you think will win Super Bowl 51? I think the Patriots will win, and I think everybody has short memories. I think that people paid way too much attention to that Texans game with a few hiccups and forgot the last two months of the season where the Patriots were number one in one loss record, point differential, defense, and you know, throw in the Brady-Belichick factor, which to me is real. Those guys are just so hard to beat. So I lean towards the Patriots versus the Falcons team where I've trusted their offense all year. I still don't quite trust their defense to stand toe-to-toe with the Patriots' defense. Is there another team that you think would have had a better shot to beat New England that didn't make it this far? Maybe Dallas at their best, but I don't think they were at their best entering January. I think they were at their best in October and early November. I think we're going to be in for a very exciting game. Are they sending you down to Houston to get to experience all that excitement at the Super Bowl? They are indeed. I can't wait. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time, Chris. I really appreciate it and helping us break down some of the different things that have been going on and looking forward to Super Bowl 51. Enjoy the next couple weeks. I know there's senior bowls going on. There's draft prospects to look at and kind of fill the void until that big game comes. But enjoy Houston and thanks again for your time. Hopefully we can catch up again soon down the road. Thanks, John. I enjoyed it. We'll close out the show with America's fastest growing sports segment called Good Try. Good effort. Here we'll briefly mention some of the instances from throughout the week when a team or a player or a coach may have meant well but didn't quite meet those expectations. First up, good try, good effort to the Pittsburgh Steelers and head coach Mike Tomlin. Since his arrival in 2007, Patriots starting quarterback Thomas Brady has 22 touchdowns, no interceptions, and a passer rating close to 130 against the Steelers, his best numbers versus any head coach in the National Football League. Good try, good effort to the Green Bay Packers defense, which has allowed more than 40 points in three games Aaron Rodgers has now lost in his playoff career, which includes the 44-21 loss to the Atlanta Falcons in the NFC Championship game. And lastly, good try, good effort to the NFL playoffs as a whole for trying to provide us any sort of excitement. Almost all of the games were decided by 13 points or more. Hopefully our friend Brent Musburger hammered all of the favorites this year. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can subscribe to The Bridge Sports Podcast on iTunes. Please leave a positive rating and review if you enjoyed the show. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll have more chatter of Super Bowl 51 as we get closer to the big game. We'll dabble with some NBA and college basketball and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.